0: Well, this weekend is Reformation Weekend. Exactly 500 years ago, this Tuesday, October 31st, 2017, minus 500, thousand, yeah, October 31st, 1517, was the exact day in history when a Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther wrote 95 theses. 95 reasons why he was against the indulgence system of the Roman Catholic Church, and he nailed it 500 years ago to the door of his church in Wittenberg, Germany. And that action was the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation. You have to understand that over 500 years ago, if you were a Christian, in fact, just think back in your legacy, in your grandparents, in your grandparents, in your grandparents, grandparents, if they were church people the only church of the day 500 years ago in the Roman Empire was the Roman Catholic Church. 500 years ago, there's no such thing as the Protestant Church. There was not a Baptist Church or a Mennonite Church or a Presbyterian Church or a Mennonite Church or an Apostolic Church. If you were a Christian and you were part of a church family 500 years ago, you were part of the Roman Catholic Church in the West in the Roman Roman Empire or the Eastern Orthodox Church in the Far East. And so... Today we live in an age where where there is much effort to try to blur the distinction between Protestantism, which is our tradition today, and Roman Catholicism. But you have to understand that historically and yet today there are significant theological differences between the two different Gospels of these two traditions This 500-year anniversary this weekend is a perfect time, perfect time to remember and celebrate together what God has done to redeem and restore and reform the doctrine and the purity of His church from the darkness of 500 years ago so that we can enjoy a pure understanding of His gospel still today. So to celebrate this, Bethany Community Church, along with Newcastle Bible Church and four other local churches in central Illinois, have bonded together in the partnership of Pairs, of pulpit swaps, and so today I'm here to preach on to the glory of God alone, which is one of these five Reformation solas. Pastor Daniel today is at Newcastle preaching on by faith alone, that we are justified and accepted by God by faith alone, and he'll preach that message here next Sunday. So next Sunday you will get the second of six messages about the Protestant Reformation and the Theological conclusions of that 500 years ago and how it impacts our understanding of faith today. And then the other four messages that you won't hear live will be uploaded to your website in the month to follow. So that at the end, you will have six different messages, one on each of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, and one message by Kendall Kaufman from Lexington Community Church on why we are called to ever continue to be reforming, still today, more and more for the glory of God, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God. May his name receive the praise. So our past is not our master, but it is a worthy teacher. And I believe it is very good for the modern church today to look back and see the faithfulness of God to his people, always preserving a remnant and calling us greater, uh, to greater understanding of these wonderful doctrines of the Reformation. Remember, the Reformation was just concerned about two chief concerns, two questions between Rome and the Reformers. How is a person made right with God and based on what authority? It was the doctrines of salvation and the doctrines of authority that created the butting of heads between Rome and the Reformers. And praise God, those five solas are now the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Those five solas summarize the heartbeat of the pure gospel of God of which we glory in today. So I've, a ch- I've chosen Ephesians chapter 1 to be our scripture reading for today. I'd invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus. I'm going to read a portion of Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. I'm reading from the English Standard Translation. I'd invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. We stand in honor of God's Word as our tradition to, uh, in, in light of Nehemiah chapter 8, to recognize that this book is like no other book because... It was written by a God who's like no other God. Let me read it for us. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us The mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And thus reads the gospel of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly and yet boldly into the glory of your presence by prayer. The blood of Jesus is very conscious on our awareness because we recognize, Father, that to be in your presence and not to be consumed is a gift. Purchased by the blood of our high priest, Jesus Christ, we come to worship. We come to praise. We come to say that you are good and you are worthy alone of glory. But Father, you know my stammering lips and my weak tongue. It is marred by sin, and the greatest barrier to our worship of you this morning is not the distractions of this room. It is the idolatry of our hearts. We come to worship you, and yet we hold in our right hands lies. We run to broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We think that peace can be found in pleasure or in power or in possessions rather than in your glory which you have revealed for the satisfaction of your church. And so, Father, in our worship we come confessing our sin of idolatry. Please forgive us for believing that you are not as good as you say you are and believing that somehow we can find our peace and our forgiveness and our satisfaction in you, in something other than you, rather. Please forgive and purify us, cleanse us, sanctify us, by showing us a greater glimpse of your glory. This is the prayer of your church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we launch into our study of the glory of God this morning, I want to briefly summarize the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. The, The word sola is Latin for only Or alone. And these five solas serve as the foundational principles for the reformation for for the reformation. They summarize the beliefs of the reformers. They, They said, this is what it essentially means to be a Christian. And they had these two concerns. I told you earlier how is a person made right with God, and on based on what authority? So these five solas are central to salvation and authority, showing how can we live eternally with God in a way that we are absolutely confident that God is 100% for us in every way. Glory to God for that. The Reformers protested against the Roman church because they believed that the Scripture alone was the final decisive authority For how we can be made right with God and how we defend our beliefs in that justification. The Roman church was not the final authority. The magisterium was not the final authority. The pope was not the final authority. The final authority for our faith and our practice in life as God's children was the word of God alone. Scripture alone is the final authority. For our faith and doctrine. Freedom from sin's guilt. And the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. Freedom from that can only be received then through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith alone. Salvation cannot be earned through some human work. Or through some accomplished merit. The Bible taught that salvation came by grace alone. Meaning... It was not based on man's decision. It was not based on man's ability that he got or earned or accomplished this or experienced salvation. As Ephesians 2.8 said, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. A person is made justified before God or accepted before God only in Christ alone. The basis of our salvation is not in what we bring to the table or the basis of our salvation is not in some treasury of merit that is bestowed by the church or some treasury of merit that's bestowed by some saint. No, we are saved on the basis of Christ and his finished work alone. Hallelujah. Now this topic of the glory of God this morning deserves far more time and far more ability than I'm able to bring to it this morning. But I do have this prayer for our hour together. This is my prayer. I pray that when we leave here this morning, every single one of our faith will be invigorated. Our faith will be invigorated as we get just a a glimpse more understanding of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, let's start now with some basic definitions. Before we do that, I want you to know the Reformers... The the, the Reformers... Chief understanding was that it was all for the glory of God. And so our main point of this message, our main point of this message is the glory of God is the supreme and ultimate purpose for all things. Now, let's start with some definitions. As a noun, the word glory means honor. It means reputation. The glory of something is its greatness, So to glory in something as a verb means that you're praising or you're boasting in or you're delighting in how good something is or how great something is. Does that make sense? You see this all the time in the sports arenas, of course. So to glorify something or someone is to declare with your lips or show with your life How great and how good the thing is that you are praising. So, to glorify God is to show his character with your life or to proclaim his excellencies with your lips. So, with these definitions, I want to try to understand the glory of God from the testimony of Scripture. And you understand that as you come to Scripture and try to study the glory of God, the glory of God is His incomprehensible greatness. It is His infinite majesty and beauty. It is His majestic, inexpressible glory and excellence. A a quick survey of the Scripture shows you cannot contain or rightly express the glory of God with using the tool of human language. I mean, after all, in Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet Ezekiel says, I saw, as it were, the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. So in Ezekiel chapter 1, he's trying to describe the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. And you know what words he uses? He talks about a, a burning, a smoke, thunder, radiant gemstones wheels within wheels rainbows surrounding thrones <laughs> i mean the best special effects wizardry could not come up with anything any, anything conceivably close to when you encounter the glory of god and the manifestation of his presence In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, the prophet, comes into the throne room. And again, he describes the glory of God as a cloud and smoke and angels and a throne. But Isaiah chapter 6 does something that Ezekiel chapter 1 didn't do to help us understand the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 6 connects the glory of God to the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then you have this amazing, amazing passage in Exodus chapter 33 and 34 where Moses, the prophet, asked to see the glory of God. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. And God replies. And He says, You want to see my glory? I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. In other words, God connects. He says, You want to see my glory? I'll show you my goodness. You want to see my glory? I'll tell you my name. I'll tell you who I am and what I've done because that is the glory of God. The glory of God is the sum of all of his goodness captured by his very name or reputation. And since this is Reformation weekend, isn't it amazing to note as well that when God Trumpets his glory before Moses, the next thing out of his mouth is the sovereign grace of his election. When he says, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. You want to see my glory? Let me show you my sovereign electing grace. Chapter 34 story goes on. God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock because no one can fully consume, observe the glory of God without a filter and live. So he hides him in the cleft of the rock and he lets him see a glimpse of his backside. And as he passes by in verse 5, he descends in the cloud. He stood with him there and he proclaimed the name of the Lord and the Lord passed before. You want to see my glory? Listen to my name. I am the Lord. I am the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. Church, Moses asked to see the glory of God. This is God's definition of His glory. Because to put it very simply for us this morning, the glory of God is just the name and the fame of God. Internally, the glory of God is who He is. It is the supreme sum of the character of all of his infinite expressions. So you pick your favorite attribute of God. God is faithful, but he's perfectly faithful. God is gracious, but he's perfectly gracious. God is angry with the wicked, but he's perfectly angry with the wicked. God is amazingly merciful, but he's per- He's in every one of his infinite expressions of beauty. He is perfectly, majestically, splendorously, indescribably glorious. And the sum of all of that holiness, because there's no God like our God, is his glory. The glory of God is internally who he is. Or you could say it this way, the glory of God is the many perfections of his holiness. For there is no God like our God. But externally, the glory of God also describes his fame. We had a staff meeting a couple weeks ago, and I asked our staff, what is the glory of God? And isn't it fascinating that a church staff has to try to find words to describe the glory of God? And our children's ministry director, I'm so thankful for her, she says, it's just the who and the what of God. I love that. It's the name and the fame. The glory of God also describes not only who he is, but what he does. God's glory is the revelation of himself through creation, salvation, judgments, and visions. The heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19.1. Ephesians 1 that we read earlier says that all of our salvation is for the praise of his glory. Revelation chapter 15 verse 8 paints a picture of the heavenly sanctuary during the tribulation judgment of God's enemies. And it describes the smoke and the the sanctuary being filled with the glory of God as his enemies are judged. And every time in scripture you see an extraordinary vision where God manifests himself to human beings in some marvelous way, the pride of man is always humbled. And the who and the what of God is exalted in a way that brings forth worship and fear and praise and obedience and love. The glory of God is the name and fame of God. That means that the supreme purpose of all things is the name and fame of God. In fact, the glory of God is the central theme of all of Scripture even though human language is unable to rightly express what is meant by this amazing topic of the glory of God, there is no greater reality in history. There is nothing more worthy of your passion and your pursuit than the glory of God. Let me say it this way. Truly, the desire to see more of the glory of God is one of the chief attributes of saving faith. For how can you say that you love God without desiring to want to know more and more of his unfathomable person and work? See, the, the reformers 500 years ago, they desired to decapitate Rome's infatuation with man as the center of all things. The reformers desired to show that it was God and God alone that was the supreme purpose, it was for his glory. And when man becomes the center of the church, then the entire church gets built around man. And if, when that happens, the chief attribute that gets celebrated in the church when man is the center of all things is the love of God. Now we believe in the love of God. We celebrate the love of God. But the reason we celebrate the love of God is because the love of God is one of the ways that he manifests his glory. And the glory of God is the root and the foundation behind the reason why he loves sinners like us. And so the whole point of the Reformation was return back to recentering our lives on the glory of God. It is a central theme of the Old and the New Testaments. It's fascinating to me that while we see creation in Genesis, we don't see the word glory in Genesis. You don't come across the word glory until Exodus. So the next 15 minutes, prepare yourself, put on your crash helmets, and buckle your seatbelts. I know you're going to be glad to have Daniel back, but for now, we're going to take a jet tour, Exodus to Revelation, on the glory of God. When you first encounter the glory of God, remember when God's leading his people out of Egypt into the wilderness. It's the pillar of cloud and fire. Exodus chapter 13 describes how the Lord led Israel out of Egypt by day in a pillar of a cloud. Remember that? And by night in a pillar of fire. Now listen very carefully. Exodus 16.10 says, The glory of the Lord was in the cloud. So don't think of this cloud as some fluffy cotton ball of cumulus happiness. The scripture describes this cloud as a terror, like a dense cloud, like smoke from a furnace. It was full of thunder and lightning. This pillar of cloud and fire was both attractive and terrifying all at the same time. It caused God's people to worship whenever it would draw near to the camp, and yet it was terrifying enough to separate and guard them as a rear guard when they were coming up to the Red Sea and stop and put itself between the approaching Egyptian army. And it's so terrifying, the glory of God in the cloud and fire, that it stopped the Egyptian army as a rear guard for God's people. Here's the point. The pillar of cloud and fire was the visible manifestation of God's glory. For the Lord himself sat in the midst. Can you imagine? God was in the cloud. The cloud and the fire. Scripture is very clear about this. Several different scriptures. The cloud and the fire was a visible manifestation of God's spirit with his people. Guiding, protecting, convicting, strengthening his people, protecting his redeemed. But the persistent sin of God's people made the presence of the Lord among them a great problem. First at Mount Sinai. The cloud covered the mountain and Moses led the people out of camp to go and meet with God at the top of Mount Sinai. And, but Exodus 19 describes very, very clearly that even though the people had purified themselves with ceremonies and rituals for days in preparation to meet God, that only Moses and a select few were allowed to ascend up the mountain and enter into the cloud and experience intimacy with God's presence. In fact, Exodus 19 says clearly, Moses put up a barrier and tell the people to get away, lest they break through and see my glory and perish. See, the glory of God among God's people promised intimacy and joy, but because of their sin brought judgment and terror. Once the tabernacle was built, The glory of God filled it to such an extent. Exodus 34 verse, or excuse me, Exodus 40 verse 34 says the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle to such an extent that not even Moses could enter it. The pillar of cloud and fire brought joy, but separation, intimacy, but exclusion. Israel needed to have God's glory with them and yet their persistent sin made his presence among them a real liability. So if you're a Jew, you're thinking, okay, never fear, 40 years of this and then we're gonna build a resting place for the spirit of God. We're gonna build a resting place, Solomon's temple. And in 1 Kings chapter eight says that when when they finished Solomon's temple, The glory of the Lord visibly appeared to such an extent that the priest came out of the the holy place. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. See, it didn't matter that it was a permanent resting place in the temple. The point is this. God is so holy that his holy glory cannot coexist with a rebellious people. And God sent prophets. There were years of warnings. Repent, turn, cast away your idols. Come back to me. I am your redeemer. But finally in Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10, Moses' greatest fear from Exodus 33 becomes true. As God gives the prophet Ezekiel a vision showing how the glory of the Lord moves from the inner court of the temple and lifts up and moves to the outer court. And then it moves from the outer court to the threshold of the temple And then it moves from the threshold of the temple over across the valley to the Mount of Olives. And Ezekiel watches with terror as the glory of the Lord leaves the Mount of Olives and ascends into the heavens, leaving his people without his presence, completely vulnerable to the onslaught of the invading Babylonians who will bring judgment to the people for their idolatry. The worst fear of Moses just came true. The glory of God has departed from his people. But God speaks through his prophets and says, There's going to come a day when my glory shall return. I will again return my glory to my people and draw all nations to see its light. No longer would the glory of God be revealed through a pillar, only through a pillar of cloud and of fire, but now through the God-man dwelling with us. Oh, church, glory in this truth today. For Luke chapter 2 celebrates the story. There were shepherds and they were watching their flock by night. And suddenly, the glory of the Lord shone around them. (laughs) And they fell in fear. And the angel told them how this night a child, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is born in a manger in Bethlehem. And suddenly there was with an angel a host singing, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest The Apostle John introduces the inter- incarnation of Jesus Christ with these words. In John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3 teaches us that Jesus is the exact radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's very nature. God no longer reveals his greatest glory through a cloud of, a pillar of cloud and fire or through an earthly temple. But now, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6, we know the glory of God through the face of Jesus Christ. All glory be to God alone by God making his son a man. God enables us, his people, to experience the blessing of his presence that we can experience the glory of God with a blessing and not with a curse. Emmanuel, God is now with us in the purest fulfillment of all the Old Testament expressions Revealing his glory to the world. And yet, isn't it surprising, church, that when God chose to reveal the radiance of his glory, he did so through extreme humiliation. Colossians chapter 2 says, The Lord of glory was Crucified. In fact, the very night before his cross, the prayer of Jesus in John 17 tells us explicitly that it was the cross that showed the glory of God in purest form. The death, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God for sinners, actually reveals the glory of God. This is the exhilarating truth that the Reformers rediscovered by the Spirit of God as they studied the Word of God 500 years ago. And they were so excited that God reconciled sinners to Himself by substitution, by taking our sin on Him and dying and paying the penalty that our sins deserved on that cross so that we might be made the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The reformers rediscovered that truth and believed it with such joy they were willing, and many of them did, gave their life as martyrs for the gospel of substitutionary atonement Christ doing for us what we could have never done for ourselves we are accepted by a holy god by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone all for the glory of god alone not surprisingly then the glory of god becomes immediately becomes the Main theme of the preaching of the early church. The apostles' preaching with the greatest thing they talked about was the glory of God. Study it. You'll see Acts chapter 3. Peter proclaims that God glorified his servant Jesus by the resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, Paul explains that Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And now that Christ has sent his spirit... To indwell the church, the very Spirit of God and the Spirit of glory rest upon us. Listen, where the Spirit is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faith, in other words, unveiled face, meaning we all, with faith in the Word of God, are beholding the glory of God. And we're being transformed from one level of glory to another level of glory as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God's glory is the marvelous theme of our salvation. God displays his glory and brings even more glory to himself through the glorification of his redeemed. Now, saved hearts rejoice in this truth. Can you fathom this? The God of all glory actually desires to share his glory with you? This is stunning. But this is how God intends to bring himself greater praise, greater honor, and greater blessing is by sharing some of his glory with us so that we can turn it back upon him in response to add to the supreme, majestic excellency of his glory. Remember, God created you in his image. In his image. You were created to be a lantern of lightness in this dark world. You and I were created to put the name and fame of God on display. And yet, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So now, it's only by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, that God is bringing many sons to glory. Hebrews 2 verse 9, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 rejoices in this truth. In this passage, it's amazing. He summarizes the very gospel of God as that which causes us to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this passage. It says, God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. Our salvation started with God choosing us by the Spirit, by belief in his truth. He calls this his gospel. And then he says in the verse 14, so that you might obtain the gospel. Actually, he doesn't use the word gospel there. He says, so that you might obtain the glory of the Lord. Because the gospel of God is the glory of God. It's marvelous. The glory of God is the theme and central theme of all the scripture. It is the gospel. It is the revelation of himself and all of his goodness and all of his fame. But Romans 8 reminds us believers today that our glory, as God shares his glory with his redeemed, our glory is still future. We will be glorified while we suffer with Christ yet today. Romans 8 makes sure that we understand our future with glory with Christ comes through the path of suffering today. By his spirit, we carry our cross today, knowing that this will bring praise and glory and honor to him forever when he appears on the day of his appearing. For, of course, the climax of the glory of God in all of history is yet future, when Jesus Christ, who is our life, shall appear And we shall appear with him in glory. (laughs) And as a sideline, isn't it interesting to note, by the way, that the scriptures describe Jesus coming back in the same way that he left? In other words, he will come back again on a cloud of glory to receive his church and share his glory with us forever, delivering us and conquering his enemies. The central theme of God's gospel is truly the glory of God alone so that no flesh may boast. None of us can stay here today and say God got a really good deal when he saved me. No. Salvation is by God, for God, through God, all about God so that no one would boast or believe that we are somehow saved our own works the glory of God is the supreme and ultimate purpose for all things do you believe that do you live that how does a person live when they believe that the glory of God is the supreme and ultimate purpose for all things if we know that all of life and all of our salvation is to show and tell the glory of God alone, then aim your life to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Can I say it this way? Delight to truly know and love God. Through the revelation of Jesus Christ and his spirit. Scripture says we can draw near with a true heart. We can draw near to God with a true heart, a full assurance of faith. In fact, go to to Romans chapter 4. We're going to take a minute. Turn your Bible to Romans chapter 4. Because to glorify God is to pursue greater faith in God's promises. Faith in God is what glorifies God. Look at at Romans chapter 4. This is an amazing passage. He's talking about Abraham, the father of faith. And if you get to verse 20, he's talking about Abraham. He says, no distrust made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. But Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. You see that in verse 20? Look at verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. If you want your life to aim to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then you believe God's promises. Take God at his word. For faith in God glorifies God. And you know what happens when a heart's given to faith in God and his promises? out of faith, explodes a catalyst of worship. And there's this vocation of holy living and love that brings glory and puts God's character on display. So I have to ask you, are you putting your faith in God alone? Or are you trusting this church to save you? you trusting your obedience to save you are you trusting in some merits some prayer some decision to save you i pray to prayer i'm saved not according to john chapter 1 to glorify god is to believe on his name alone meaning that you use your lips to tell others how good he is. And you use your life to show others the fruit of the Spirit, Christ in you, the hope of glory. A chief Reformation doctrine is that above all, God glorifies himself, and he delights to bring glory to himself in part through glorifying redeemed sinners, allowing us to glorify him through our faithful response to his grace in return. May God receive all the glory and the praise and the honor that he is due from his church. Amen. Let's pray. And so, Father, together as a church, we again come to say thank you. Thank you for showing us just a little glimpse of your glory. Thank you for tearing the veil and showing us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thank you for setting upon us and in us the spirit of glory. So that we're no longer led by a pillar of cloud. We're no longer restless, never knowing when the cloud would move and when the cloud would stay. But now we have you in us. Oh God, please deliver us from idols. Please purify our boasting. Help us to learn to boast in our weakness. These cracks in our fragile clay pots that allow the supremacy of your glory to shine with radiant brilliance through our lives. Oh God, show us more of your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.